0: Welcome to Emergence Magazine's Podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, Executive Editor of Emergence Magazine. Our podcast features in-depth interviews, narrated essays, and stories exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. For our inaugural issue of the magazine, we sat down for an interview with eco-philosopher and Tibetan Buddhist scholar Joanna Macy. As an activist and pioneer in the field of deep ecology, Joanna has spent the last five decades working to bridge ecological awareness and spiritual values. As the root teacher of the work that reconnects, Joanna created a groundbreaking theoretical framework of personal and social change that has empowered people around the world. She has translated the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke and is the author of numerous books, including World as Lover, World as Self, and her memoir, Widening Circles. I got a chance to sit down and speak with Joanna about her life and her work at her home in Berkeley, California, in October of 2017.
1: But I would like to begin with just centering a minute and of and uh, a great grateful uh, prayer, beloved mother, father, lover, Earth. Our larger self, our greater body are so grateful to be granted a human life right now at this time of such anguish turmoil when so much suffering and loss is occurring and we're so grateful to be given human identity and a human voice and so we can take part in human councils and help us to uh, be ever more fully aware of the blessings of being part of your intelligence. So be it. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask you a question about Your youth, Um, because I heard you talk about how you had some um, very impactful nature mystical experiences when you were on your grandfather's farm in upstate New York. And um, I was really curious to, uh, you know, in the context of this discussion of how your relationship with Earth has changed and deepened over time, and how it has influenced your work and the many ways that you have brought forth conversations and connections to Earth um, over, I guess, 50 years of work in so many different ways and spheres. That first moment of having a connection to Earth and recognizing something alive there and, and what, what those experiences were like for you.
1: I was uh, nine when I started going for the summers to my grandfather's farm. It was in western New York, a couple of miles north of the Erie Canal, and uh, it was very simple. Uh, No indoor plumbing in the first years, Uh, horse-drawn plow, a few pigs, a dozen cows, chickens, horses, and so forth. So it was the same time I'd been taken to live in New York City, And um, I hated it. it, the noise, the grit, living high in an apartment. We didn't have a car so we would just wait till school was out and go up for the summer. And that journey up from Grand Central on the Empire Express by train to Buffalo eight hours was uh, like approaching the pearly gates, getting out of prison. So the uh, quiet of it, the uh, soil of it, there was quite a bit of boredom for going to, which I now uh, think was that was just fine uh, because that I would wander a lot, and I was given. Uh, a horse for my care uh he was excused from his his uh draft duties of drawing and I was allowed to ride and take care of him and images from that time away the the stream would come down through uh around a bend and all the little crawdads in it it still comes to me. Or wandering into a corner of a stand of the woods and seeing one of our horses disappear into it. This is like the stuff of my, um, neural uh, assemblies in my brain, uh, just where the sun would be across summer as it moved south as it set. I felt I was open to there having been a lot of time and my people going back, and my world filled with brother-sister beings of kittens and dogs and the calf we were growing. With every passing year, uh, I am more grateful for that time. And when I wrote my memoir, I began it right then. I began the memoir with a sense of who and what I am that I received sitting in my favorite place to be in the maple tree. And it was never more than a third of the year at the very most, usually just a quarter of the year, that was intense enough to be give me imagery and a heart connection, a felt Uh, resonance, an emotional resonance that has been a touchstone for me for, uh, see, it's for the following, uh, see, I'm almost 80 years older than the nine-year-old that came for the first time.
0: (laughs) And how did these experiences, this notion of kind of kinship or friendship or aliveness that you felt, how did that interface with your christian upbringing and and kind of the notions of of god and relationship to are... well
1: quite Correct. well because you see we were a family of quite liberal protestants so i loved certain i loved the hymns of st francis and i loved the sense of belonging but there was uh, just about the time i left the farm the dichotomies in the in religion, between flesh and spirit, and people who are extra ecclesia non salus, no salvation out of the church. And not that I heard that much, but that I began to, I was so in love with the sacred that I decided to uh, study in, you know, um, theology and scriptures. And, and that's when. The, Problem started for me, and I finally, by the time I was graduating from college, had to walk out of the church.
0: And and at that time, how did that affect your relationship with with, with nature? Or this beginning of you know,
1: uh... well, nature was what was left. <laughs>
0: Was this when you were uh, after,
1: after leaving college? So,
0: the, you were in France at this time. Or yeah. Yeah.
1: In my young adulthood, and in my marriage, of, of we get my with my husband, I went into. He took me into uh, the natural world farther than I'd ever been, and we were uh, camping and canoeing, and I was out in the mountains and I was skiing and. So there was a tremendous sense of exaltation with the beauty of that. We barely talked, and we, we were two of the most talkative people with each other. We could Once we were together, we talked to Blue Street, but not camping. It was just like being in a cathedral, you know. You don't burst into conversation in a cathedral. Yes.
0: And was this in the mid-'60s at the time? Or, or,
1: well, when I married in early, the early 50s, 53, yeah.
0: So this was before you did your work with the Peace Corps?
1: That's right.
0: Because I was struck in learning about, you know, your experience there, you know, with the Tibetan refugees, it, all, it seemed like it was the right time at the right place after the right set of experience that had opened up something in you that allowed you to be present to that experience in a... At least from my perspective, looking outside
1: no, it's extraordinary how how fortunate uh I was with that unfolding
0: and the I guess the at that point you had not found a spiritual religious path outside of your experiences in nature that had touched you and silenced you and your husband <laughs> in that great cathedral
1: so it was this quality of their uh Presence in the world. I just had never met people like that. And then here they'd come out sick, exhausted, with just the clothes on their back and the sacred objects they carried out over through periods of snow blindness over the mountains. Oh. And, uh, but their quality of being in the world was seeing everything as if for the first time. Uh, and I don't even know if I knew those words, but. When I walked on that uh, Losar New Year, Tibetan New Year's morning across the tea estate where they were squatting, these Eastern Tibetans, and I heard the long horns for their morning puja on, and saw the tall flag poles with the cloth rippling, and uh, there was just, uh, oh. Yes. I'm worthy to be given this. Oh,
0: this was after your your Anti-nuclear work. Yeah. But your anti-nuclear work seemed to have a very influential role in your life. And and this concept of time that emerged from that.
1: Yes. I was gripped by a summons through my son's freshman term paper. Yeah, it was when he came home from his freshman year at Tufts, environmental engineering, and he handed me... He said, Mom, you might be interested in seeing this paper I wrote. And I said, Oh, I'm sure that I'd love to read it. And then when I did, it changed my life because it was about uh, the pollution from nuclear reactors. Not even the radioactive, just the thermal pollution that was changing the waterways and coastal waters wherever, because every reactor needs so much flow-through of water and it contaminates every spoonful of it. I found it so horrific. And so before the end of the year, I had joined him in um, his affinity group protesting the Seabrook construction, of the Seabrook reactor in New Hampshire. And then it just tumbled. I was just learning so much.
0: How you shared that story in the past is... There was something in you that which felt compelled to act yeah. in a way that maybe you hadn't before.
1: That's right. There was no question. What bothered me was I was discovering all this information of how the Virginia Electric Power Company racking their spent fuel rods too close together. It was illegal and it risked a critical action, an explosion, hmm. and... Uh, so uh, I went to join them, and I did it simply because I'd gotten so discouraged. I'd, I'd had a kind of a fallen into a moral abyss of questioning whether human life, even complex life forms, could continue, that we were so stupid. I wasn't clinically depressed, but, but despair. You were
0: feeling what? What was overwhelming about this particular issue.
1: But fortunately, I got very interested in why people were able to turn away from wanting to even talk about the dangers we face. I was getting a lot of information, but people didn't want to hear it. When I bring it up at a meeting or a dinner party or... People didn't say, Oh, I'm so glad you brought up nuclear power. You know, like, <laughs> and um so I I thought, Why are we avoiding what we need to know? That was What is it? And I began to read psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton and his work around he named psychic numbing. He had done a study of the effects of nuclear bombing on the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then he found that the same thing was true of the people who made the bomb. And we too were not wanting to look at it. And then I found there are a lot of things we don't want to look at. We don't want to look at at all the statistics about birth defects and miscarriages around nuclear installations and so that led me into experimenting wh are question why are why do we not want to know this and is it because it's not patriotic? is it because we think we're crazy? Is it because we're afraid of moral pain what, what is it and uh that curiosity was like a little fish hook that pulled me out of the horrific despair so i began to experiment because i was also teaching meditation and using that could people how do people react to uh, mental and moral pain or how can they talk about what's hard to feel mm. and uh, and so that was incredibly Revealing to me, and out of that I built a form of group work that led to where I am today. With, with the grief the, work,
0: what? With with the pre, you know, it's just the yeah. beginning of the grief it's, work. So we
1: called it despair work. Mm. And then I wrote an article about it. But then this article, which was how to deal with despair, I generated hundreds of letters more than had ever come into the journal. And and although I didn't tell people, I just said how we dealt, what, what I found that despair really was. It was a form of profound caring, which was good news about us. And that not to be afraid of it and the ways to live with it and how you can turn it into action. Every single person, nobody said, you didn't tell us how to... Solve all our problems or anything, or even one, but thank you. they said, thank you, thank you for showing me I'm not crazy mm. And so then I was invited to do workshops on some this article, and I said, well, i don't
0: I'm, you want to be a university professor yeah <laughs> but life was pulling you in another direction yeah mm.
1: And this caught on very fast, and there were people joining me. It was really, I I was inviting them to explore and express uh, their uh, despair, their outrage, their grief, their fear, their dread. And there was a lot, because this was in the Cold War still, and Ronald Reagan was being elected, and... There was the nuclear arms race. And I'd never seen so much hilarity. There's just such liberation. And because we were reframing. We weren't pathologizing our grief and despair, which is what the dominant culture does with the help of the pharmaceutical industry. So this is normal. It's constructive. But then what I noticed, they began talking as if they'd had a shift in identity from being a separate individual to being the earth. Often it wasn't jokingly, but you could feel it that they had an expansion of sense of their own autonomy and personal relevance. And then ah uh, so I thought uh well this certainly Demonstrates Paticca which was the Buddhist term for our interdependence, our interexistence, our interbeing. Boy, that is demonstrated, and I didn't even expect it. But then I heard the term deep ecology and the term that belonged with the ecological self, that when we mature, a natural maturation of the human is toward widening fields of relevance and caring and that your self-interest expands from being just what affects you inside your bag of skin to what expands your family or tribe or country to... Uh, what happens to Earth? And I saw th- that. I said, "Oh, people are we're, we're, we're experiencing that." Also, I there were not only the ecological self, but in Buddhism, there's the term the Bodhisattva, mm. as the as the individual with a boundless heart. Who won't even step into and take uh, rest in Nirvana until every blade of grass is enlightened, till so all beings are freed from suffering?
0: I mean, it sounds like that was a convergence in your life of these different experiences you have. You know, the, yeah. the Buddhism, the you, teachings that you had been studying and practicing for, I guess, at that point, almost 20 years. Um, the deep time work experience of you know, being aware of the impacts of the nuclear energy uh, systems that were being developed yeah. the the grief that you had experienced, and then coming together in a, in a powerful moment um what did that do to you personally when you felt those worlds converging?
1: Well, out of words, it, joy, uh, humility. Gratitude. I I guess gratitude most of all. And the... uh, Circumstantially in our planetary journey things are a lot scarier and a lot more destructive now. Uh, But I... Still hold, since you know those last what's that thirty years, uh, uh, since that deep ecology work became, I was giving a name to what what I had already been experiencing, because I didn't plan it. You know, here was this I called it a shift in identity. People were acting as if they were more than their separate self, but not in any kind of controlling, faunting self, way, but humbly. And that, uh, but I feel it's whatever happens. And this gives me ballast, Emmanuel. It gives me sense that I have a lot of grief for what we're doing to our world and to the future. But I know at the same time that whatever happens, uh, I will, there's nothing that can happen that will ever separate me from the living body of Earth. Nothing. It's who we are. And that is so vast. My mind can't, is, is just able to experience that much of what is there for uh, to experience and to open to. I'm still too small in my imaginative and, and intellectual power to be able to really take in what that means, but the little that I have offered tremendous uh, comfort. Nothing can ever remove me from the living body of earth, whatever happens, or all of us. So we're already home.
0: for so many people these last 30 years who've I think felt what you are describing too you know the power of that larger perspective and way of being in relationship and yet as you said times are difficult you know and mm. even today we're sitting on a probably one of the hottest days on record in the Bay Area in October and fires have been burning in the
1: And I'm aware that that what kind of comfort, you know, I could see somebody up in Santa Rosa say, what kind of comfort is that? I've just had everything I ever had burned to a crisp. I'm left with nothing. And I felt the fear of that myself Mm -hmm. last night after the um, huge winds and the hot and the heat. I, I feel such awe that at this very time that we're landing ourselves in such a as humans on this planet or as life on this planet, that they have been two great rivers in the human journey, spirituality and science. And in our early days, they were interwoven, but they've been hideously separated over the last centuries, and we've been torn apart by that. And now in our time, they're flowing together. And that is, the promise of that is huge. In every major religion, there are these voices, but it's coming so strong from the indigenous ones, is that the earth is alive. And the earth is sacred, that follows because if the earth is all we have, then we're totally dependent on, then that is sacred to us. And that we wake up in this time to the sacred that we're living within and nourished by the sacred living body of earth and its intelligence, her or his intelligence. And not only that, but I feel that in this time, the dangers we face are creating a huge evolutionary pressure on us to wake up to our true nature. We got to wake up to that or we're toast. (laughs) Big time.
0: You've had, you know, a rich, to say the least, life and experiences that led you one after another to deepen this exploration deep in this journey, deep in this conversation with the earth and awaken something in you which prompted you to awaken something in others. And your work has done that in so many ways for 30 years. But I'm always left with this question now is that, because I too feel this emergent possibility and the, the, the crying out of, of, of the earth to be recognized again and to be heard and to be listened to. But I also wonder how people can learn to listen again. Um, you know, sometimes it can take a lifetime to learn to listen. You know, I guess the big question is, you know how do we learn to listen if we don't have the time to be, to go on a journey like you have or go into, you know uh, uh, the work that that you have offered to so many in a, in a deep way? but what are the ways we can learn to listen?
1: What a wonderful way to begin, in a way, because that's the question. How do we learn to listen? I feel, I sense a hunger and thirst in people to be present. And I, there's no question in my mind that our presence in our world is the greatest gift we can give it. Curiosity is a beautiful path. And we can walk the path of how we listen and how we help each other listen. Sometimes I see the path we're on as having a ditch on either side that we could fall into. And one is paralysis, just shut down in fear, and the other is panic, social hysteria, Turn on each other. And learning to listen a little for either one calls you back.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a book sitting to your left that you've had here since we've been sitting here talking together. and.
1: Oh, can I, I give you uh, what I thought of some lines? You could put them in a little box.
0: I, whatever we can do I think would be lovely. But I have a question for you before you read. Because yeah. I'm you know, it seems like your relationship to Rilke has been a huge part of your life. Oh, yeah. And I, it has I,
1: been so, yeah. And actually, when I first encountered his poetry was uh, back in the 50s, very soon after I'd walked away from Christianity. I was in in Germany. My second child had just been born. The same one who wrote later about nuclear reactors. And it was snowy day and I go into a bookstore near the university and there's this little, oh, I have it here. I think I have the very, oh, da ist der doch, das Stundenbuch. That's the very book with the old Gothic script.
0: This is the book you found in the bookstore in the 50s. (laughs) And this is a book that in some way changed your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what happened when you opened these pages?
1: I, I picked it up. And I opened it, and it fell open to the second poem. Ich lebe mein Leben in wachsenden Ringen, die sich über die Dinge sehen. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may never complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, that primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? I had thought that I'd failed on my spiritual path. I thought my spiritual path was a linear one, that it would go like Pilgrim's Progress through various stages of learning to the heavenly city. To live my life around in widening circles, I said, oh, I can own that. So we're so lucky to be alive now, aren't we?
0: We are indeed.
1: At this moment where anything we've ever known how to love and everything we've ever learned, how to seek courage and connection can serve.
0: Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and Intune. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.